Morning. You guys are a little bit more awake than the other service. So, um, so we're looking at Acts chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to read a short article to begin. Um, and the title of this article is How to Wreck Your Church in Three Weeks. So, this will be good. Um, this passage that we're going to look at this morning talks about early conflict in the church, and I think it's good for us to know how small, subtle things can really lead to a lot of division within a church. So, this was written, I think, five years ago. Uh, title is, How to Wreck Your Church in Three Weeks. It's good. It breaks it down week by week, so you really know what to do. Um, it says, walk into church today and think about how long you've been a member and how much you've sacrificed, how underappreciated you are. Take note of every way you're dissatisfied with your church. Take note of every person who displeases you. Meet for coffee this week with another member to share your heart. Discuss how your church is changing and how you are being left out. Ask your friend who, who, who else in the church has concerns. Agree together that you must pray about it. Week two. Send an email to a few other concerned members. Inform them that a groundswell of grievance is surfacing in your church. Problems have gone unaddressed for too long. Ask them to keep the matter to themselves for the sake of the body. As complaints come in, form them into a, uh, form them into a petition to demand an accounting from the leaders of the church. Circulate the petition quietly. Gathering support will be easy. Even happy members can be used if you appeal to their sense of fairness that your side is being, uh, that your side deserves a hearing. Be sure to proceed in a way that conforms to your church constitution so that your petition is procedurally correct. Week three, with growing moral zeal, ill-defined but power, powerful, reaches critical mass, confront the elders with your demands. Inform them all of the woundedness in the church which leaves you with no choice but to put your petition forward. Inform them that for the sake of reconciliation, the concerns of the body must be satisfied. Whatever happens from this point on, you have won. You have changed the subject in your church from gospel advance to your own grievances. To some degree, you will get your way. Your church will need three or four years for recovery, but at any future time, you can do it again. It only takes three weeks. Sadly, this is really true. Um, it's really important as we look at this passage in Acts and just the flow of the beginning of this book of Acts that we see the early church had problems. Uh, like every church that has ever existed, there are problems in the church. Nothing is perfect. We all have grievances, something we're upset about, something we're hurt by, um, and so what happens sometimes is we read Acts and we think, oh, that was glorious. Like all those people sharing everything, how could anyone be angry? Well, we will see. What we do underestimate many times as people is our longing for comfort and longing for fairness and our expectations of a church. And we need to be conscious of these. Uh, we all are bent as human beings toward uh, what is easier, what is comfortable. And so when uh, Scripture calls us to do something uncomfortable, 
uh, we try to figure out why that's wrong. And really, we should, it's much, much better that we live a life of comfort. And so we move that direction. And it might be good for you to wrestle through the question, uh, what is your expectation of the church? What do you expect of the church? If we're really honest, we can say that we will be disappointed with any church we're involved with. Uh, just like in the first century, they were disappointed. Because what we hear is a complaint that's raised up and given to the apostles. There's a complaint about these people aren't being cared for. You need to do something. I have never seen a church with this motto, but I think it would be lovely, and I would love to attend. Uh, a, the church that had a motto that would say, we will fail you, but we will point you to the one who will never fail you. Really, this is what we try to do as a church. We will not meet your needs, but we want to point you to Jesus. As we all fumble to figure out what does faithfulness really look like. Since the early church, since the uh, form, the, after the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, there has been struggle. There's been persecution. The apostles have, some of them have been arrested. They've spent nights in prison. They've been beaten. Uh, they've been commanded that they cannot speak the name of Jesus. Uh, they prayed for boldness. Two of their members were killed at their front door because of their own lying and deceit. And now, conflict. This is the body that you and I, the, the, the body of Christ, this is it. This is what happens. What we see in this passage is uh, faithfulness is increasing, conflict is increasing. And this is how churches grow. Let me read Acts uh, 6, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now in these days, uh, when, the, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of apostles, or excuse me, of disciples, and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said displeased, or what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, there's something in us as people, as we serve the God of creation, that we assume that uh, doing uh, the work of God, participating in the mission of God, that things will be easy that things will be much more comfortable, that we'll have much more satisfaction. But what we read about in the early church is they had huge struggles. And so if you're here and you have huge struggles, you are at home in the biblical story of those striving for faithfulness. I think we forget that throughout Scripture, 
God's people are called as people who will suffer. And we're God's people and we serve uh, a Savior who is known as the suffering servant. Our mission as the people of God is not of uh, temporary peace, it's not of temporary comfort, uh, but a long plod of faithfulness. It's pointing people to Jesus. Opposition, then, is not always a sign that you're doing something wrong. Uh, Opposition exists because we live in a broken world. And there's opposition externally to the work of God, and then there's opposition internally in you and me to the work of God. That we struggle because we want something that's more comfortable. The great message of the gospel is our identity has changed and we're set on a new mission to proclaim the goodness of Jesus. And we are to be people who are continually being shaped by God. First Peter, which is a book written to the suffering church, in chapter 4 it says, let the, let, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is you and me. This is the work of the church. Entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what's happening in this passage in the early church? It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. The disciples are increasing. The word of God is going forth. There are, uh, the apostles are teaching. There are miraculous signs. They're showing that this Jesus is the authentic one, that the apostles are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And this is going forth. It's interesting in this section, verse uh, 1 and verse 7, they have sort of the same idea of the disciples are increasing in number. And then in verse 7, it says the word of God continued to increase. Uh, What's in the midst of this is conflict people that are hurt, but this is what's happening. And this is the regular growth of the church. Uh, Our growth is not that there's less and less conflict. Our growth is that we begin to realize the desires of our heart and we let Jesus deal with those more and more. So what happens? There's a complaint by the Hellenists that rose against the Hebrews because the widows, the Hellenistic widows, were not receiving their daily distribution. So what you have here is you have a church that's made of the Hellenists, which are Greek-speaking Jews, and then um, you have the Hebrew-speaking Jews, and they become Christians, and they gather for worship, and they speak two different languages. Uh, You think we have things that separate us and divide us as Americans, you have a service where one, one community looks at, uh, reads something in Greek, and the other reads it in Hebrew. So not only is it language, it is culture. What is going to unite this group? If we were posed with this problem, one of the things we might say is, well, choose a language. And then, like, that's going to unite you. Choose a language. But it's not going to. The only thing that unites the early church, that unites people is the great work of Jesus. Because to the great work of Jesus, we come open-handed. If it's something else, we have something else to hold on to. Even this barrier 
even with this barrier of communication, there was still unity. But there was still conflict that arose. There were still hurt feelings that people weren't being served the way that they thought they should be served. So the solution was not to erase these differences. They understood um, that language caused some of the Greek-speaking Christians to be neglected. Some of it was a language barrier that these widows were being neglected. What's interesting is that the chapter before in chapter 4 and the chapter 2, how does it explain the early church? They had everything in common. So imagine, uh, this is being written about you and I in this church. We had everything in common. Everything is wonderful. There are people in the corner saying, uh, you are saying everything in common, but uh, they feel neglected. And there's real hurt. And these people might say, well, no, no, no. We're all cared for, aren't we? And these people over here say, no, we're not. How do you fix this? What, are the apostles, what will the apostles do so they can direct people to what truly unifies them? And we're to be generous people because we serve a generous God. Who are we to be generous to? Anyone that God brings before us. But when our aim is for our own ease and for our own comfort, we easily get distracted because we have those selfish desires uh, to meet our own need over the needs around us. So as the disciples are increasing, this is the complaint. The twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The apostles said... um, Yes, that is something. There's a problem. But the apostles understood that you cannot leave the Word of God and prayer to meet a need of mercy. But you also cannot neglect it and say, no, no, my job's over here. Uh, I don't know what to do over there. Because they're all mixed together. Word and deed. As you and I understand the Word of God and how generous and hospitable God is to us, what happens? It creates in us generosity and hospitality towards people. And so these people, as they are understanding God's mercy, here there's a group of people that are saying, we're not receiving mercy. And so the apostles say, we need to get people who can be hands to extend mercy. And so they said, brothers, pick out from among you seven men, good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. The apostles understood that uh, the core of the ministry of the church is the ministry of the Word and prayer. These cannot be neglected. It would have been easier for the apostles to say, okay, this is our ministry, Word and prayer. Uh, We're not going to touch anything else and to elevate them to a different class. It also would have been uh, very easy for the apostles to say, oh, there's an there's a immediate, felt, real need. We're going to stop doing this word and prayer thing because that can wait, and we're going to go uh, serve people in a way that's merciful. That's a danger also. So what they do is they unite the church and say, we need people to serve and to serve in a way that's helpful to the church. 
and the help that's helpful to the mission of God. And the disciples that the answer that the disciples arrive at is really not an easy answer. Both of these, the ministry of word and prayer and mercy and compassion are works of faith guided by the Holy Spirit, and they're both needed in the community. They're greatly needed. In this, we can understand the diversity within the body of Christ, that the way that you are made and the things that you love to do, things that you love to make, are needed in the body of Christ. But what unifies us is not that uh, we have the same talent for something. What unifies us is Jesus, that we come open-handed because he draws us and he provides for us. And this complaint, this concern that's brought up, it does not mean that the church needs to change its mission. Because that would have been easier. It's easier to be swayed by the loudest voices. For the, it would have been easier for the apostles to say, we're just not going to focus on the word and prayer because maybe it's not accomplishing something because look what happened. These people are needy. And to go focus there. But they realize, no, we do this so we can be more trained and understand how God is merciful to us and then we can extend true mercy. I remember early on in our um, core group meeting as a church four and a half years ago that um, uh, someone wanted to meet with me because they were frustrated. And so I met with them and we had a really good conversation. And one of the things they said was, uh, when are you going to stop talking about the mission of God? When are you going to stop talking about um, God like moving out and drawing people? And when can we begin to talk more about like internal things? Because uh, what happens is people, is we have this separation. We, we do it with evangelism and discipleship. You go to evangelism-specific training, how to share what you believe, and then you go to discipleship-specific training, how do you grow in your faith. The Bible never separates those. But we don't like that they're not separated. <laughs> we want to separate them because then we can manage them better. It makes more sense. And we can say, well, I need more training in this area. Instead of the mission of the church is to make disciples. That means someone is not a follower of Jesus. They rub shoulders with you. You answer their questions. You show them the Bible. They see how you live. Uh, God's spirit works in them. They come to Christ. You still interact with them and live life with them. And they grow. But as human beings, we don't like that tension. We want to separate it because it's easier. But the Bible does not do that. Verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose seven men. Good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wise. They, they gathered these men who would help assist. Which means you are all needed. Um, I am not that talented. <laughs> Many of you know that. I am not that talented. Uh, the only reason why we exist as a community is God's abundant grace, the way God has shaped me, and the way God has shaped you, and here we are. And so the way God has shaped you, 
and the, the place that God has put you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, you are needed. You are needed because God specifically put you there. God put me in my neighborhood. I'm not going to call you and say, hey, I don't know how to get to know my neighbors. Can you get to know them for me? And maybe, like, live life with them and tell them about Jesus? <laughs> no. God put me in my neighborhood. And God put you in your neighborhood. And what we're to do as people is as we understand how faithful God is to us, we are to live in faithfulness and proclaim and promote the work of Jesus. And sometimes that is, here these word, uh, the ministry of preaching or teaching, it's verbally, you're explaining something. Sometimes it is your hand of mercy to your neighbor. And they're both needed. What happens with these men is, is as they're gathered, there's a public meeting where they're prayed over. Their, their hands are laid on them to um, acknowledge that God and the community of believers has, has carved these men out for the specific role to be hands of mercy, to friend the friendless. True religion, orphans and widows. It's an act in the Bible, the act of laying on hands is an act of blessing. And then, what does Luke do at the end of this? He gives a brief progress report of what's going on in the church. Here's what it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is what's happening. In the midst of this conflict, people are coming to faith. The church grew. But the word they use the words they use are, the word of God continued to increase. This is the growth of the church. The word of God continued to increase. How does the word of God continue to increase? It does not mean that uh, in the Bible more words are added. What it means is that uh, is you, as people are reading the word, the word is being applied to people, and then the word is going forth in more and more people. The truth of the message of Jesus is going forth. Well, how does that happen nowadays? It might be you taking the simple step of reading the Bible with someone. I know that sounds too simple. You, just as equipped as you are, you open the Bible and you read the Bible with someone. Your neighbor that does not know Jesus. Uh, your neighbor or the person that's next to you that, that understands the gospel uh, to help them and you to move to more and more faithfulness and maturity. It says, the number of disciples multiplied. So as the word of God increased, the result is that more disciples are being trained and equipped and the word of God is going forth through them. And then priests became obedient to the faith. So what's happening is there are the, the non-religious, the irreligious people who are coming to faith, and then specifically the religious people, the, the, um, the priests, not the chief priests who are really big in the temple. These are the common priests who like lived in your neighborhood. Uh, 
Imagine the conflict now that's happening in the church. You have those who understand um, what Jesus has done. Uh, You have the non-religious who come in with all their background, and they're beginning to understand Jesus, so they're being transformed. And then you have the religious who have devoted their life to the message of work really hard. That's a lot of conflict. But it does not mean that God is not working. What we see is that God is working in wonderful ways because that church is pretty messy. But sometimes it really is the easy step of extending mercy to your neighbor, opening the Bible and reading the Bible with someone, praying that God would be faithful to his word, which he is, and that you would be able to see that. So both the irreligious and the religious were meeting Jesus through the ministry of the early church. Uh, Early on, also in our uh, core group meetings, we talked a lot about reading the Bible with people. And there was a family, and I'll use their names, the Matthews. Maybe some of you remember them. Um, They, I remember meeting with Pete and... I encouraged him to read the Bible with someone. And so Pete uh, went to his neighbors, knocked on his neighbor's doors, eight to ten neighbors, and said, hey, I'm going to read the Gospel of John. Will you read it with me Thursday night? And then people actually showed up at his house who wanted to read the Bible to understand it more. People that grew up in the church and were turned off. People that had no concept of who Jesus was. And they gathered around his living room and they read. They only got through like four chapters because it was really slow. But who cares? They're reading the Bible. So Pete calls me the next day and says, Jason, we got to get together. He goes, I have no idea how to do this. So you know what happened? He grew in his faith. And he began to realize Maybe it's that simple. And it's that, it's taking the bold step of asking someone, hey, will you read the Gospel of Mark with me? Will you read the Gospel of John? I just want to read it with you. And we're going to talk about it. You are equipped to do that. Because what's going to happen is you are going to have a greater desire to read and understand Scripture because you know people are asking you questions that as a Christian, you probably don't think of. So reading the Bible through the eyes of someone who does not understand Jesus is really helpful to your faith. This is what's happening in the early church. The Word of God is increasing. Conflict is increasing. Persecution is increasing. Uh, People are beaten and put in jail. This is the growth of the church. This is the growth of the church. And as a church, we want to grow. We want to grow because every person who walks through the door is valuable. Your neighbors are valuable. And so your ministry of the word of reading the Bible with someone, of praying with them, and of meeting needs in a way that's extending mercy, that is the work of ministry. And so, what we hope is that we will be known as people, like in 1 Peter, who entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good.
This is the mission of the church, to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It will be hard. If it's hard, it doesn't mean it's bad and you should not do it, unless it is bad and then you should not do it. But just because it's hard, just because it's uncomfortable, does not mean that you shouldn't be active in it. It's hard to ask someone to read the Bible with you. It brings up a lot of insecurity. And actually, that's a great opportunity for you to understand who you are in Christ. And it creates a desire for your own growth, and it creates a heart for the people around you who hope in something that really will not meet them. As a growing church, conflict will surface. Hard things will surface. And this is why we need each other. This is why we gather on a Sunday morning so we can remember, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. There's someone else on the other side of town, one of you that is trying to reach their neighbors like you are trying to reach your neighbors. And it's hard. And the only reason why we move in this direction is because we understand how Jesus moves toward us. He takes the first step and the final step. He provides all that we need. He embraces us with his love. He loves you more than you could ever love him. The more we understand and grasp that, the more we understand what it means to step out and move forward with the mission of God by extending mercy and grace. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts to come and receive of this meal of grace this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. And we thank you that you know our weakness. We thank you that the great love that you have for us um, is true and beautiful. And we ask as we partake of this meal that we would rightly confess our sin before you, that we would cling to Christ above anything else we desire to cling to. And we pray that we would be nourished In Jesus' name we pray, amen.